The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. This will be, I think, a really, really interesting conversation. I've spent the last hour or so listening to some of the uh, interviews that William's been on, uh, as well as looking at just broader things around his book, which we'll talk about here. But I'm excited for this conversation. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour here is William Green, author of Richer, Wiser, and Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. All three of those are things that I strive for, but I can't quite get all three at the same time. Huh. But we'll, uh, by the end of this call, you'll have it. Now. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so listen, William, for those who are not familiar with your background, just introduce yourself as far as who you are, what, what have you done in your career, and what got you to write the book? Sure, absolutely. So I, I grew up in England, as you might be able to tell from the accent. My, my wife claims that the only reason she married me is because of my accent and that it started to fade. So I have to be careful. And I had a kind of classic English education. I went to Eton, which is where Prince William and Prince Harry went. And the last, I guess, two out of three terrible British prime ministers went to Eton. And then I went to Oxford and I studied English literature. And I thought I was going to be a famous novelist. And I, I came to New York and thought I would write. And I went to Columbia Journalism School. And I started to write for all of these publications like Fortune and Forbes and Barron's and Time and The New Yorker and The Economist and the like. But gradually, somewhere along the way, I became weirdly obsessed with the stock market, probably about 30 years ago now. And because I was a journalist, I had this incredible opportunity to interview famous investors and write about them. So for many years, I would be interviewing people like Sir John Templeton, who was probably the, the greatest global stock picker of the 20th century, or I'd interview Peter Lynch, or you know, in the days after 9-11, I would travel with Bill Miller, who was in the middle of a a 15-year streak of beating the market. And I would be flying on his private plane with him and hanging out. He, he bought this private plane because he had, a, I think, a 105-pound Irish wolfhound that he liked to travel with. So we would just, um, I just got to hang out with these kind of extraordinary people. And so my book really grew out of this, Richer, Wiser, Happier. I interviewed about 40 of the greatest investors. So these are people like Charlie Munger, Buffett's partner, Howard Marks, who overseas, whatever, $150 billion or so, Bill Miller, uh, Jeff Gundlach, a lot of these legendary investors. And what I was trying to do was really explain to people, what, what are the principles that these guys live by? What are the processes you use, what, that, that they use? What, what insights do they have and habits do they have and personality traits do they have that have enabled them to beat the market? 
And I'd say in some ways, that's been the consistent question running through my mind really for the last 25 years, trying to figure out how they beat the market. And then most recently, I've switched also to doing a podcast, a richer, wiser, happier podcast. So again, I've been interviewing people like Ray Dalio, who's, I think, the most successful hedge fund manager of all time, Howard Marks, Joe Greenblatt, Bill Miller, Tony Robbins. I'm interviewing Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist in a week or so. So again, it's just trying to figure out what actually enables you to succeed in investing, but also what you can learn from these people about how to think better and actually more counterintuitively, even how to live more wisely. Okay, so there's a lot of different directions to go with that. First, I'm curious, what defines an investor as being great? So you mentioned famous investors, and I think there are a lot of investors that you can argue are famous, but nobody really knows what their actual performance is except themselves, because it might be a family office or it might be very tightly held. So how did you go about screening who is considered great? It was an entirely unscientific, idiosyncratic and personal and subjective definition. And so one of the things that I was doing is I was saying, well, I don't want people who are just a flash in the pan. If someone, if someone had an amazing, amazing bet that made them an enormous amount of money over one cycle, and then they kind of fell apart, I'm not that interested. So I was much more interested in people who'd stood the test of time. So I was fascinated by people who had done well over decades. So you think of someone like Charlie Munger, for example, who's now 98. That's a pretty interesting figure. Or someone like Sir John Templeton, who I, I interviewed when he was probably 86, and who probably had a 50-year record of outperformance. But then you also have this problem that, as Bill Miller once said to me, the biggest problem in markets is that they change. So, so it's not enough just to have had a really long record, because the circumstances also change. And so somebody who used to be unbelievably good, maybe maybe they fell out of sync with the market, with the world, maybe things changed. And so it's just so it's a, it's a really difficult and idiosyncratic process to decide who is great. One of the things that I decided to do to protect myself, partly in case any of these people blew up it, after I had said they were great, was that I wanted to I wanted to think, well, who's a really good thinker? And so I wanted to pick people who you could learn stuff from. So even if they ended up having a lousy period where they were out of favor, you they they embodied certain ideas and practices that were incredibly helpful. And so and then I I would say the other really idiosyncratic thing I did in selecting people to write about is that I really wrote about people who I think are kind of on the whole pretty decent human beings. And so I wasn't I didn't there were there are certain billion. I've interviewed you know dozens of billionaires over the years, as you can imagine, and there are some of them who are just kind of pretty repellent human beings. And I'm not trying to be judgmental about it. I just sort you're, of thought, you're free to like, curse on Twitter Space. So well, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm doing my best to be polite in English, but you know, there were some people you would just you would just think this guy's kind of a snake, and and why do I want to you know because I'm a very slow writer and I'm obsessive. I might spend five months on a single chapter. I don't really want to have living inside my head somebody who's an appalling human being, whose only virtue in life is an ability to make very rational bets that have made them a multi-billionaire. And so I think, I think one of the consistent things is I was holding up people who in some ways I regard, they're, they're, not, they're not perfect human beings like, like the rest of us. They're, they've all got their flaws and, flaws and foibles. But I'd say they're all people who are admirable in certain ways. And so it's really striking to me that when I, 
when I would interview someone like Howard Marks, for example, who's been overseeing something like $150 billion at Oak Tree, when you talk to him about what made him proud in his life, one of the things that made him proud was literally the fact that he'd never had an argument in more than 30 years with his partner, Bruce Karsh. And I think that's really interesting. It was really important to him to be regarded as a good human being. And likewise, Charlie Munger told this extraordinary story where he and he and Buffett were offered the opportunity to buy a company that he said was the greatest single company, the greatest business that they'd ever encountered. And it was a snuff manufacturer. And he said, we knew going in that it was a killing product, that it would cause certain types of cancer. And he said, they, they looked at this company and they were like, why? Why would we be better off owning this company? And so they passed on it. And another another famous family, the Pritzker family, bought it. And I think made something like $3 billion in profits. And Munger was like, my life would be worse having that money rather than better. And so I think that's really interesting as well. When you When you see people who are thinking about not just the scale of their victory, but the manner of their victory, it makes you start to ask questions about how do I actually want to live my life? Like, what actually constitutes a rich and successful life. And if I just become very rich, but as as Mungo's daughter said to me, you know, you lose the the, the game of life, you lose the battle for, for a good and decent life, is that success? And so that's one of the things that I'm looking at in the book is these these sort of broader philosophical questions, or almost, you know, spiritual questions as to what actually constitutes a successful and rich and abundant life. And 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 so I've had this weird opportunity to get inside the heads and the lives of some of the richest people in the world for many years. And so it gives you it gives you a different vantage point on what actually constitutes abundance. So I think this is interesting because you could argue that one of the traits of being a, a good good human being in general is is having humility. And I can make a clear link between humility and being a great longer term investor because if one is not humble, if one has overconfidence, they might have a hell of a run with some investment returns, but then that overconfidence re- results in too much risk being taken, then the eventual blow up, and then the, that investor is no longer investing to the same extent they were before. So it is interesting to make the case that being a good human is is kind of a key component to being a, a good longer-term investor. Your, your point about humility is actually a really interesting one. And I, I, I was having dinner a week or so ago with a friend of mine who manages some you know the best part of a hundred billion dollars and we were talking about humility and we were saying can you think of any great investor who's truly arrogant and we were like yeah there are people who are truly arrogant who've been great investors but have they have they endured like did they did they blow up and and i think that's the problem you you know you you have to have this weird combination right you 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 need to have the confidence and the courage of your convictions to make contrarian bets to say i'm smarter than everyone else i figured this thing out i the crowd thinks this but i think the other thing so that does require a certain degree of self confidence and and knowledge you know you need to actually have an edge but at the same time if you're overconfident it's kind of unlikely that you're going to survive and so i, I I had a very interesting conversation with Jeffrey Gundlach, who's often described as the king of bonds, who oversees about $150 billion. And in some ways, Gundlach is kind of arrogant. Like he's he's someone who's kind of swaggering and, you know, thinks that he can predict the future and the like. And, well, and although, so, although in fairness, he's also a bit of a showman, right? And, and that's part of yes. the marketing tactic as well. That's true. And, and there's, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of brash 
a, a, a brashness and a, and a brilliance here. And I'm not saying this to be critical. I think he's a very remarkable guy. But, but, but one of the things that Gundlach said to me is that he's also extremely conscious of the fact that even the greatest investors are wrong at least a third of the time. And so what he said to me is that, that before he makes any investment, he's, he's asking himself, what's the consequence if I'm wrong? And that's a, that's an enormously powerful thing that is kind of something all of us can emulate. I think that it's you know it's 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 hard for me to be as smart or as brash or as confident or as knowledgeable or as intense as Jeff Gundlach, but I can I can clone that idea that before I make an investment, I want to ask myself if if I'm wrong, what's the consequence? Just how bad is it going to be? And I think that's that's that awareness of your own fallibility. And the awareness of the fact that the future is unknowable and that really weird shit can happen is hugely important. And, and that's something I think all of us have seen lately. You know, I, I, would, I would interview people about, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And I would, you know, I've interviewed Bill Miller for probably the best part of 100 hours over the last 22 years. And so I'd, I'd written about him recently in Barron's and I'd, I'd, I'd interviewed him on my podcast talking about Bitcoin in, in depth. And Bill, you know, who's who's a very brilliant billionaire, I mean, truly brilliant guy, had at the time I was interviewing him, I think he had over 80% of his net worth in Amazon and Bitcoin. And Amazon, he basically, I mean, he basically said to me, look, my, my, my price effectively, my average price for both of these things is zero, because I bought them so early. So, so he was playing with enormous profits. I mean, he, he said to me at one point, he was the largest single individual shareholder of Amazon, not called Bezos. So this is, a, this is the guy who's made these huge bets, right? And so I published this stuff saying to people, you know, here's this incredibly ballsy, very brilliant guy who's got a ridiculously large amount of his net worth in these two positions. And some of the responses, people would be posting stuff on Twitter saying, wow, he's only got like 60% of his net worth or 50% of his net worth in Bitcoin. It's like, I got 120% of my, of, of my money in, in, in Bitcoin. It became like this kind of macho thing. And whether you think you're right or not about that or about any other bet, any other high tech bet or any fund you love, you want to be saying to yourself, well, if Gunlack can be badly wrong, if if Howard Marks can be badly wrong, if 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 you know, Sir John Templeton said to me he he looked at half a million investment decisions that he'd made over the course of his career, and he said a third of them were, as he put it, the opposite of wisdom. And so if they if these guys who were supremely talented and incredibly bright and incredibly intensely engaged with the market can be wrong that much, you just want to be going into the world with a little humility. So, so with, I'd look at something like Alibaba, for example, which I own personally. And I was looking this morning, it was down to like 8% this morning. So I lost 53% on Alibaba. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not particularly thrilled. But it doesn't actually have any impact on me at all. It's like there's no, it's not a big enough portion of my portfolio to have any impact on my lifestyle. Any, It, it doesn't even cause me a flutter of worry or upset. And And that's something I think I've learned from from the greatest investors. And so, so Gundlach's point that he made to me was you want to make sure that your, your, your mistakes are non-fatal. That's, that's a very powerful thing to remember, non-fatal mistakes, because we're going to make them. And, and those non-fatal mistakes are the key to 
go going back to what you said earlier to standing the test of time, right? Because whenever you talk about standing the test of time, these great investors stood the test of time. Really, what you're saying is they stood the test of drawdowns, right? And yeah, in doing that, not only stood the test of drawdowns, which is very hard mentally as the portfolio manager managing money, but it's also hard from the emotional transference that comes from clients who may not be able to stand that drawdown in the same way. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayet here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, and I, I, I think this gets at a number of really important points. So one of them is there's, there's probably too much focus in, in the media and in the investment world on outperformance instead of focusing more on the avoidance of ruin. And I think... Oh, please, 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 I love that. Please, because that, uh, you're hitting on something which is such a frustration for me. The, the media makes everything like a competition. You have to, quote unquote, beat the market. But at the end of the day, you have to worry about the risk of loss, right? The risk of the extreme. Yeah, yeah. And, and the investment business does the same thing, right? Because most most professional investors, they have to justify their existence by saying, look, I... I beat this index by this amount. And, and, and most of them, after fees, there's just no way they can sustain that over the long term. So there's a little bit of sleight of hand going on here where they're, they're already playing a game that's incredibly hard. Most of them are going to fail. And so when things work out, they have to be like, look at me, look at me. I, I beat the market you know, by, by half a percentage point or one percentage point or whatever. Or maybe they had a blowout year and they, they beat it by a wide margin, but they're not going to be able to repeat it. So there's a sort of, there's a horse race aspect of it that's very exciting to watch, right? It's, it's kind of like watching sports. But, but for the rest of us, really what you want to learn from the greatest investors is, is that you have to stay in the game. The, the avoidance of ruin is utterly key. And so there's a, there's a legendary investor called Ed Thorpe, who some of, some of our listeners will have heard of, who not only is famous for having run a hedge fund that didn't even have a losing quarter for 20 years, but who also was the guy who figured out how to count cards. He was the first guy to do that. So he beat the casino at Blackjack. Then he figured out with this famous um, scientist from MIT, Claude Shannon, they made the first wearable computer where he could activate it with the big toe in his shoe. And he could tell how fast the rotor wheel, the rotator wheel and the ball on a, on a roulette wheel were going. So he could figure out with slightly better odds than average where, where the ball was going to drop, which pocket it would drop in. So this is a guy who's a master of playing games, right? Like he's, he's, he's figured out how to beat the, the casino at multiple games and he's had a hedge fund, never lost money. And so when you talk to Ed Thorpe, which I did for, for this book about really what you want to learn from him, it's, it's all about playing games where you have an edge, where you're, he's like, look, if I don't have an edge, I'm just not going to play the game. And so so he, he gets this informational advantage, right? He, there are certain things he understands better than other people. And then, then he just keeps plugging away, not getting blown out of the game, never taking so much risk that he's going to get blown out of the game. And so that emphasis on playing games that you can win, 
being honest about whether or not you have an edge, and then actually just surviving long enough so that you know the odds are going to favor you over the long term. That that's critically important. And and there are so many ways to play the game. I mean, if you look at if you look at all of the people I write about in the book, there are a lot of paths up the mountain. But with all of them, they have to have some kind of edge, and they have to and they have to stay in the game long enough that the the, the probabilities of success uh, are likely to work out in their favor. So on that on that point, William, the uh, there's this question of frequency versus magnitude when it comes to being a great investor. And I remember from a youth when I was reading the Market Wizards books by Schwager that the a lot of these so-called great investors would have periods where they're not really performing that great and then they have sort of an alpha burst, right? That it's not necessarily about the consistency of returns on a month-after-month basis, but that when they win, they win in a big way. I'm curious if in your interviews, in your analysis of some of these great investors, if you found that there was a similar sort of sequence to their own returns where there was this almost lumpiness to alpha. Yeah, I think there's tremendous lumpiness and and that's that's one of that's one of the things that makes it so hard actually to identify whether someone's truly great. So, I remember for example, there's a there's a fascinating guy called Francis Chu who's a an investor based in in India who's a, uh, sorry, he's he, he grew up in India, he's of Chinese extraction and he emigrated to Canada when he was young and he and he starts out kind of literally he was soldering wires for the electric company for the telephone company and he teaches himself how to invest and he's made himself you know hundreds of millions of dollars personally as an investor to- without ever going to college or anything and i've had this debate with him because he's he's gone through these periods where he just kind of looked like a moron there was one period i mean he's so disciplined in the way that he invests as well he he's, he said to me at one point look i could go 10 years without buying anything because i can't find anything cheap and so he would sit there with loads of cash and he'd look totally out of favor. And people would be like, what the hell is this guy doing? He's like, yesterday's news. And then I talked to him probably about a year ago. And he took me through what had happened during that initial meltdown when COVID hit. And I guess it was probably about March 2020 when the market melted down. And he suddenly put enormous amounts of money at play and just made an absolute fortune. He showed me the fortune that he'd made. And it was, it was, it, it was a really good reminder that it's not... It's, you, you know, part of the game is just to be ultra selective. You, you, this is something Buffett talks about the whole time. Munger talks about the whole time. You don't, you don't have to hit every pitch. And so, sorry, I'm I'm an Englishman, so I, I should be talking about cricket. My knowledge of baseball has just been used up. But you know, Munger has this wonderful image where he talks about being like a spear fisherman standing standing by the side of a stream. And he said, every once in a while, a fat, juicy salmon swims by and you spear it. And then you go back to doing nothing. And it might be six before another salmon swims by. So, so I think part of, part of the lesson is that most people feel they are active. You know, in, in most areas of life, you're rewarded for being super active, right? For being dynamic, for doing lots of stuff. And this is weird areas in life where, as, as Buffett would say, you're actually just paid for being right. It doesn't matter how often. When you see a really great opportunity, you need to really profit off it. So, so someone like Joe Greenblatt, I wrote, write about, who's one of the greatest hedge fund managers of all time, who averaged 40% a year for 20 years, an impossible feat. I write about the fact that at one point, such a surefire bet that he put 40% of his portfolio in it. And I'm, I'm not advocating that anyone would do that. And when I interviewed him recently on my, on my podcast, he said that he thinks probably that was a mistake, even though it worked out really well, that it was too aggressive. 
but I think I think really great opportunities aren't that frequent. And so part of at, at least for the great value investors I write about, and that would be kind of my 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 temperamental prejudices in favor of them. I, I think they're very selective. They wait for a really good opportunity and they don't get sucked into hyperactive bets on things that are kind of mediocre. And so, so, so this goes back to your point, Michael, about emotional control that you, you have to, I think, be, you have to have, it's not just that the greatest investors are intellectually formidable or analytically formidable. A, a huge part of their advantage is actually temperamental. It's, it's having the patience to wait having the patience to to ride their winners for many years, being able to bear the fact that they look like fools at times and that everyone ever that what they do doesn't work. Well and and I'd argue struggling alone in the crowd. Right? I had to put I put a quote on that a couple of days ago because you might have drawdowns and sometimes meaningful ones that surprise everybody, including yourself. If you have an approach that is designed to try to get those real fat pitch moments you have to be stubborn in ignoring all the tweets, <laughs> ignoring yeah. all the comments from those that are saying, well, hashtag you suck, look at your results, you should have gotten this right. You know, a lot of this kind of nonsense you see, I think, with the FinTwit social media world. Yeah, there was a, there was a moment where I, I was with Bill Miller when I was working on, on this book, and I, I, I was at his house in, in Maryland, and, and, and I was talking to him about go, going through the pain that he'd gone through during the financial crisis, when he'd been massively, massively wrong analytically, and had paid a huge price for it, and and he had been so famous and so revered that his his failure was kind of very, uh, you know, it was like the the media kind of went after him, and the and the public went after him, and there was a kind of public shaming, and and there was a moment, you know, then he he started to have this unbelievable recovery, like an incredible recovery over the last decade or so, where. He was in the top 1% of all funds for probably the last 13 years, something like that. And he was showing me, he was showing me, you know, there had been some story about how Miller is like the best again. And, and some, someone had written some tweet saying, ah, that asshat Miller is just going to blow up again. And Miller was like, really? Asshat? He's like, I've never met this guy. What, what? you know, and, and I, I think that's really hard. There is a, there is a sense that not, not only, not only are you having to, have conviction in your own, in your own contrarian beliefs, but you've got people in the crowd kind of throwing throwing rotten eggs at you and saying you're a moron. And I I just think most people can't handle it. I mean, there's a reason why most money managers hugging the indexes are more conservative or less contrarian. And it just it just it takes a very rare combination of of intellect and temperament, I think, to go against the crowd. And so part of my part, part of my conflict in writing the book was that I'm trying to tell people, look, here's here's how you can win this game. Here's what we can learn from all these great investors about how to win this game. But I'm like, should I be honest about the fact that the chances are you're not going to win this game because it's really, really hard. And so at a certain point, I just decided, well, look, I, I don't want to be leading lambs to the slaughter by claiming that it's easy, you know, in the way that the media sometimes does. Where, where you're like, I, I remember in my early days, the financial journalist, you know, you'd see headlines, and it would be like, these four stocks can make you 63% over the next year. And you're like, you don't even know if the market's going up or down, you know, on what possible basis can you say these three stocks are going to make you 63%. And so I was just trying to be honest about the fact that it's a really hard game. And, and so I think if there's a takeaway for the rest of us, it's that you have to kind of say to yourself, well, 
do I actually have the skills and the fanaticism and the temperament and the calmness to win this game? And, and one of the kind of slightly unsettling things I realized in the course of reporting the book is I don't. I, I actually don't. I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm extremely contrarian by nature. I think as a writer, you do have to be a bit of an outsider questioning everything. But I'm much more fearful. Than, than the greatest investors. And I, uh, you know, that's a, I, I worry too much. I'm too fearful. I'm kind of patient, but then I have bouts of impatience. And it's, it's just not a great temperament for it. So, so I, th- I think that self awareness, asking yourself, what is my edge? I mean, I, I listened, Michael, to part of an interview you did the other day with someone who I think was, was he a uranium expert? And that, yeah, that's really interesting. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's somebody who's, who's, probably got an edge by taking a very, very small niche that, that he can understand better than pretty much anyone else. You know, so you have to, there, there are a lot of different ways of getting an edge. And I, I don't know who that guy is. I, I don't know that he truly has an edge. What do I know? But, but I, think, I think there are a lot of ways of getting an edge, but you kind of have to, you, you have to really ask yourself, do I have a rational reason to, to believe that I have one? There's so much to this conversation that hits home for me personally, given the way this year has played out, which we can touch on in a bit. But everybody's here just to reset the room for the remaining half an hour or so. First of all, make sure you follow William Green here on Twitter. And of course, check out his book, which is, it's on my reading list myself, Richer, Wiser, Happier. Got some phenomenal reviews on Amazon. I think it's uh, unequivocally worth paying attention to here. Let's get some of the audience. Go ahead and unmute yourself. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I th- yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation. I, I I'm interviewing Tom Russo on my on my podcast next week, so I'm just starting to prepare for that. And I Tom has an amazing record since the 1980s. And I remember asking him about a uh, a, a guy I know who's got a very very good record, and s- saying to him, "What do you think? Do you think he's someone I should invest with?" And and Tom sort of said, "He hasn't truly been tested by a down market yet." And and actually, when I looked at it. He he'd started his fund at a time where he he'd immediately taken about a fifty percent hit, you know, in in sort of two thousand eight two thousand nine. So I, so I think that wasn't entirely true in that case. But I thought that was a really interesting observation that you you need people who've been battle tested, and I I mean I just think for for one thing you need to see how they handle it emotionally, right? You you want to see you know. Did they actually, you know, okay, so they had a they had a process that made sense, but did they subvert the process at that time? And that 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 that's really hard, right? I and so I think you do need a little luck. I mean, that's one of the things I, I talk about at length in writing about Howard Marks is he's like, look, I he said to me once, even the fact that I have a really high IQ, I didn't deserve that. You know, that was luck. And I think one of the ways that that Howard keeps himself humble—that's like that's like an amazing humble brag. I think will be the term for that. It is, but I think, but I think it's true. He's like he he's constantly reminding himself of his good fortune in life. He's like, look, 
I mean, in, in Howard's case, I think he was born in about 1945, 1946, right at the end of World War II, at a time when the market was about to enter, you, you know, the market and the country were about to enter this tremendous long-term upswing. And he happened to be born to parents who, although neither of them had been to college, they valued education, they bought an encyclopedia. And then and then he, he got into Wharton, which he said he didn't really deserve to get into. And then he, he said the one thing he knew was that he wanted to work at Lehman Brothers, and he applied to Lehman. And to his great disappointment, the call never came to tell him that he'd been hired, so he went and worked elsewhere. And, and then years later, discovered that the partner at Lehman Brothers, who was supposed to call him and tell him that he'd been hired, got drunk and had a hangover and never called him. And, and he's like, look, if I had just had that one stroke of bad luck, of ending up at Lehman Brothers, I probably would have become a partner and would have lost my entire fortune when Lehman Brothers went under in the financial crisis. And so I think one one of the you know one of the things that that, that I that I write about in writing about Howard is a that makes you happier to think well I'm just a lucky guy like 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 fate has smiled warmly on me kindly on me, but b it's it's a reminder not to get caught up in in what I call master of the universe syndrome. And I think I think that's a tremendous danger, particularly for very highly intelligent people who've been successful in the market, is to start to think that they actually truly know what they're doing. And I, I remember Bill Miller when I when I said to him, in some ways, was was your coming undone during the financial crisis a blessing? You know, has it been has it been helpful to you in some ways? And he's like, oh, it was tremendously cathartic. He's like, when you're right, right, right for many years, he said even though you remind yourself to remain humble, he's like, some of it seeps through and you start to actually really believe that you know what you're doing. And he said, you're constantly going on CNBC and Bloomberg and all of these channels and everyone's telling you how smart you are. And he's like, you, it's very easy to, to lose sight. And, and so then he said, when you've been as wrong as I've been in such a public way, it forces you to go back and look at your process and say, well, what do I know? And what don't I know? And am I under diversified? And, and I, so I, I just think that that self-awareness, that awareness of our own fallibility is, is hugely powerful. And, and not only fallibility intellectually, but our vulnerability emotionally. And so you have to ask yourself, if, if I'm hit by a really tough, how am I going to be able to handle it? And, and so what I was saying about Alibaba before, I wasn't saying in a self-congratulatory way. There's nothing very self-congratulatory about saying you just lost half, half, half of your investment. It's like, that was me saying, I, I want to invest a meaningful enough amount in, in different assets so that if it works out, I'll do well, but not so much so that it's going to absolutely torment me if it gets killed and if I'm wrong. And that was kind of a reaction to the fact that I, I went through the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And there, you know, not only did I get hit in terms of my stock portfolio, but I actually lost my job in the middle of it. And I was like, wait a second, I, I sort of, I, I didn't realize I was going to get hit by both things simultaneously. And so, so because I knew that the journalism world was so vulnerable, I, I'd been editing the international editions of Time magazine. And because, you know, we'd lived through so many periods of layoffs in the journalism world, I just didn't have any debt. And so I'd sort of set myself up so I'd be able to ride through the crisis. So even though it was absolutely miserable, and I felt kind of crushed and shamed by it all, 
at least I never had to sell a single stock. I was actually able to buy stuff during that period of the meltdown. And so I think, you know, your, your point about just, just thinking about how you're going to survive these difficult periods, you know, not just, just the up cycle, but setting yourself up so that as, as one of the great investors I profiled said, you, you, you need to set yourself up to survive the dips, not only in investing, but in life. You know, it's a. I, I've been talking to this to, to one of my kids about this the last few days because they just went through a, a breakup with a with a, a boyfriend, and it's like it's so painful. And you're just trying to say to your 21 year old kid, you know, it's okay. You know, you just have to survive the dip. Sometimes it just hurts. And and I think it's I think it's the same in markets. You know, these these principles tend to if if they work in markets, they tend to work in life as well. Is a there's a clip I often share of my father where he's teaching a bunch of Merrill Lynch brokers in the mid-80s talking about cycles. And he says something along the lines of, in everything in life, there are cycles. Your mood, your happiness, your success, your success, your investing, everything is cycles. And you're going to have these dips, you're going to have these advances, but still, hopefully, in a secular uptrend. Right? And I think that's something that gets missed from by a lot of people when they think about not just investing, but their own personal happiness and what they're going through at any moment in time, which is just, I think, a good reminder there. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I do an insane amount of preparation. I mean, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed at how much preparation I do. And in some cases, you spend an enormous amount of time with the person. In some cases, you just can't get that amount of time. And so one extreme, for example, the first, the first big piece of reporting that I did for the book was I went to India for five days with Monish Pabrai. And so literally, I'm traveling around India with him. At one point, I, I shared a bunk bed with him on an all-night train ride from Kota to Mumbai. I mean, so you're really trying to get deeply immersed in that person's life. And for someone like Monish, I had already interviewed him in Irvine, California, at his office in Irvine over many, many hours, gone out for dinner with him there. I traveled with him a couple of times to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. I think I'd met him in Israel before because he's very close to Guy Spear, who's one of my closest friends. I'd had lunch with him in New York. I'd been to to a, a class that he taught at Columbia Business School. So, I mean, that's kind of a ridiculous amount of access. And so what you're trying to do, and, and then during those five days, I'm writing obsessively. I mean, I'm sitting there in a, in, in a, in a car sort of swerving between trucks in, in, in rural India, interviewing him from the back seat, and I'm just writing nonstop for, for days. And so then the enormous challenge is that you're having to synthesize all of that and say, so what does it actually mean? And, and so for each of these major characters in the book, in a sense, what I'm trying to do is say, if you want to learn really the most important thing from Monish Powerbright, it's this. And so with Monish, the, the, the idea that, that's at the heart of that chapter is really the idea of what he calls cloning, which is, which is saying there are people who've already figured out the smart way to play this game, whatever game it is. And I'm going to reverse engineer what they do. And then with relentless attention to detail, I'm going to replicate it. But I'm going to replicate it in a way that suits my temperament and my talents. And so that chapter becomes an exploration of how he's done that in various areas of life, not only not only as an investor, but as a businessman and as a philanthropist who's dragging tens of thousands of people out of poverty. And so likewise, with something like Charlie Munger, Charlie was at the absolute opposite extreme where I, I get this message from Charlie's assistant saying, yeah, Charlie will give you 10 minutes. And so I fly 3,000 miles for a 10-minute interview with Charlie. And I probably spent 
two weeks preparing for that, maybe, maybe a little more. And so when I went in, I sit down, you know, knee to knee with this kind of then, I guess, 93 year old sage who's sort of peering at you through his immensely thick glasses and, and he's got one glass eye you can barely see. And I don't have any time. So literally the first thing I say to him is I regard you as the grand master of stupidity reduction. And I want to talk to you about that. Like, why is that your approach? And he's like, well, it works. It just works. And he proceeds to explain to me the whole of the 10 minutes basically is about how to succeed in, in investing and life by reducing what he calls standard stupidities. So there, there's the absolute opposite extreme. But in each case, I'm going in and I'm trying to say, what, what's the re- heart of what we can learn from Munger? Like after all of the, 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 the speeches, all of the essays he's written, all of the interviews he's done, the time I've spent with him, the people I've interviewed about, uh, interviewed about him, what, what do I need to synthesize and share with people about what you can learn from him? And then I would say there are other people I, somewhere in between. I, I probably spent two and a half days with Arnold Vandenberg, two days with Tom Gaynor. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was really trying to get to, to get as much time as I could with the most important people in the book. I think, I think it's pretty obvious that you can learn from these people how to get richer, that, that they figured out a way to play the game that to different degrees we can replicate depending on our skills and talents and fanaticism and temperament and the like. So that wasn't a hard sell. But what happened to me over many years of interviewing these people is I could just see, well, they're extraordinary thinkers. It's not an, I mean, people would often say, well, it's all just luck. You know, it's kind of random that they've beaten the market. It's like, no, it's, you know, there is an element of luck, but it's striking that people like Munger, people like Howard Marks, people like Ed Thorpe win again and again and again over decades. And so I was like, what, what is it that enables them to stack the odds in their favor? How do they think better? And, and, and so that became a kind of really recurring theme because then you start to look, for example, at that idea of Charlie's, that what you really want to do in life is, is systematically reduce standard stupidities. That's an incredibly powerful model to view the world. And that's something that you can apply in every area of life, right? I mean, you can, you can look at investing and you just, you just start to list all of the dumb things that, that bad investors routinely do. And then you start by saying, well, let me not do that. And, and so that's an incredibly practical idea, right, for an investor. And, and it's a really good example of how to think better. But then I look at that and I'm like, well, that also applies in every area of life, right? I mean, my life will get happier if I reduce standard stupidity. So I would talk to someone like Tom Gaynor, right, who's co-CEO of Markel, a Fortune 400 company. And he said, look, I can apply Charlie's idea of reducing standard stupidity to something as simple as going to a bar in the evening when I'm not with my wife. And he's like, if I drink two drinks, if I have two glasses of wine, I'm, I'm not making myself vulnerable in the way that I am if I drink 10 glasses of wine. And so that, so you look at something like that and you're like, wait a second. So this, this, just this one principle of reducing standard stupidity, of constantly, of consciously focusing on what not to do before you focus on what to do, that, that affects so much in life. That, that affects your, your investments. It, it enables you to avoid standard stupidities, like putting all of your net worth in something that you don't really understand or having excessive fees. 
It enables you to think better because you're, you're inverting problems. You're saying, let me solve the problem backwards. So instead of just saying, how do I become a great investor? You say, let me focus on how not to be a terrible investor first. So it's like, it's like solving a math problem through inversion. And then third, it's a way of becoming happier in life. I mean, you're saying, look at all of the stupid things that people do that blow themselves up in life. So, so think of the, the ways that we, we borrow from the future, right? By living beyond our means, by cheating on our spouses, by cheating on our taxes, by cheating on our expenses, all of these things that give you maybe a little dopamine rush in the short term, but borrow from the future. So, so again, like the principle of deferred gratification, which I write about at, at great length in, in the book, it's something that has enormous benefits as an investor if you have a really long-term perspective. But it's also, it's also a key to happiness, right? That if you can actually defer gratification, it's going to help you with your relationships. It's going to help you with your, your fitness, with your health, with getting into medical school or whatever it is. Everything really worthwhile takes some degree of deferred gratification, I think. So what struck me is that the, the principles that work in investing turn out to be incredibly helpful in other areas of life. And so I just, I wanted, I wanted to say, no, there's actually this entire way of thinking about approaching life that, that stacks the odds in your favor. It's not, it's not that the outcome necessarily is great if you behave this way. There's still luck involved. There are still probabilities. There are still pieces of, of misfortune. But you subtly and, and, and systematically tilt the odds in your favor. And over time, that's liable to work out well for you. So, so that's what I was really trying to do. If there's a, if there's a kind of a sort of spine to the book, an underlying, an underlying theme that runs through the whole thing, it's to say, what, what can you learn from these people about how to stack the odds in your favor consistently and systematically in all these areas of life? And, and, and I, I, I'm surprised at how consistent it turns out to be that, that some, some, Someone like Howard Marks will use a practice in one area of life in investing, but then he actually applies it in, in other areas of life. And it turns out to be incredibly wise in other areas of life. Please make sure you follow William again and also follow me as, as host of this space. Yeah. One, one, of the, one of the most important ideas that came from Howard is something that he learned when he was at college. So he, as I mentioned before, he, he gets into Wharton and then, and then he was a really good artist back then. And he... He tries to get into art class and it's overcrowded. And the professor says, all right, tell me your name and what you, what you study, what you're majoring in. And he says, Marx, finance. And the guy's like, right, you're out. You're the first out. And so he's like, all right, so what am I going to study? So he ends up in a Japanese studies course. And he discovers this concept of mujo in, in Japanese, in Zen Buddhism, which totally transforms his life. And, and this idea of mujo is basically that everything is impermanent. Everything changes all of the time. And so what Howard figures out is, well, actually, this is a profoundly helpful thing to understand in markets. But if everything is changing all of the time, then what I really need to do is not to assume that I'm a master of the universe who can predict what's going to happen. I need to accommodate myself to, to circumstances as they are now. And so what he's saying is, I, I can't predict the future, but let me predict the present. Let me look at the conditions that exist now and then adapt my behavior to the current conditions. And so it's a little bit like if you go out in your car and it's incredibly foggy and there's an ice storm and you can't see and you kind of think that some of the, uh, the, 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 
the wires, the electric wires are down on the road, you're going to drive like, you know, four miles an hour. Whereas when it's a beautifully sunny day and there's no one on the highway, you know, you're going to go a little faster. And so it's just accommodating yourself to reality as it is. This is a, this is a phrase that I just think about the whole time, both in, both in markets and life, accommodating myself to reality as it is, not as I want it to be. And so one of the things that you're doing to deal with uncertainty is just recognizing the fact that, that the conditions change and you don't have control over them, but you do have control over your own behavior. So, so for example, during, during the, the period at the start of COVID, when I interviewed him again for my book, because I was fact-checking the book, he suddenly sees massive fear, massive uncertainty. Nobody knows how bad COVID is going to be and the markets are melting down. And he's like, yeah, but assets are incredibly cheap. And so I'm able, because I'm a, a good analyst and I know what things are worth, you know, my team and I can go in, analyze this stuff and buy it incredibly cheap. And the risk is actually low. It seems like the risk is high, but the risk is actually low. So he goes in and puts a couple of billion dollars to work instantly during that first meltdown period at the start of COVID. And then prices surge and he's like, the opportunity is gone. And he just goes back to, um, to being very careful. And so, so I think that idea of adapting to the situation you find yourself in, looking at it and saying, well, how much risk are other people taking? How, how aware are people of the downside? And so now suddenly, people are much more aware of the downside than they were a couple of months ago, right? And so in some ways, that makes it a less exciting time to invest. And in some ways, that makes it a more appealing time to invest because you know that certain things are going to be mispriced. So I think one of the, one of the, one of the questions I explore in the book is, you know, Joe Greenblatt says that the whole business of investing can really be reduced to one sentence, which he says is basically you're, you're, you value businesses, you value assets, and then you buy them for much less than they're worth. And so this raises a really important question, which is, do you actually know how to value assets? Do you know how to value a business? And so I think part of the advantage for people like Greenblatt and Howard Marks is they're just, they're just looking at the situation as it is and saying, when I, when I look at the valuation here, how much risk is priced into it? How much optimism is priced into it? How much pessimism is priced into it? And so you adapt your own behavior based, based on, on whether, it, whether there's a fat, juicy salmon swimming by or whether it's like a drought and the, you know, the stream has dried up and there's nothing there. So I, I think there's a, you, you need that knowledge. You need the fundamental ability to analyze businesses, to analyze assets, and to ask yourself, you know, as Howard would say, the single most important question to ask is, is it cheap? By the way, I love that point about conditions. My colleagues will often joke with me that I say the word conditions too often, but I really do believe that point. If you believe that the future is unknowable, too many focus, too many people end up focusing on the idea of what's the call. And my response is, it's not about what's the call, it's about what are the conditions. That's the weather, right? Conditions dictate probabilities, probabilities dictate outcome. And if you believe that conditions are ultimately what drives everything, that should be the only thing you focus on, as any investor really should. Exactly. And, and you also want to prepare yourself for an uncertain future. So you want to say, well, I know that the future is uncertain. So let me at least make sure that I'm as anti-fragile as can be. Let, let me make sure that if the shit hits the fan, I'm going to survive and I'm going to stay in the game. And, and, and yet at the same time, as, as one of the investors I profiled talks about, 
He says, you know, yeah, you have to survive the dips, but you also have to position yourself to participate in the upward trajectory of mankind. And so you, you, I posted something on Twitter the other day from Howard Marks where he was saying, look, we've had 17 recessions in the last century and we've had two world wars. We've had lots of less major wars. We've had Great Depression. We've had the global financial crisis. And yet through it all over the last half century, uh, over the last century, the market has gone up 10.5% a, a year on average. And so you, you want to position yourself to survive an uncertain future and to stay in the game. But you also don't want to get despondent during these periods where it's difficult. Because I, as, as I say in writing about Sir John Templeton, he made this enormous bet during World War II when the world seemed to be ending. Uh, and I, I was saying, he, he remembered the, the fundamental truth, which is the, the sun also rises. So, so this isn't about not taking risk or taking extreme risk. It's, the whole game is about taking intelligent risk. And, and so it, what, I, what I'm trying to convey from these greatest investors is, is how they survive, but also how they position themselves to, to take intelligent risk. And I, I think that applies both in markets and life. There, there are like obviously stupid behaviors that make you fragile in life. And, and, and so I think what, what you want to do is go through both your portfolio and your life and say, where am I fragile and how can I remove fragility? And so if you're behaving in a way that creates fragility, you know, like, like, like when I had the spoonful of chocolate chips with, with peanut butter last night and decided not to get on the Peloton, I'm, I'm adding a little bit of fragility to my life. And likewise, if I neglect my wife or if I, I'm kind to my kids or something like that, I'm, I'm adding a little bit of fragility to my relationships. And the same thing with the portfolio. If I'm investing in things that I don't really understand in a country I don't really understand, like China, I'm adding a little bit of fragility in my life. So, so I think if you just go through your life systematically saying, where am I fragile and how can I, how can I reduce that fragility, you're much more likely to stay in the game and prosper. And, and, and as Munger would say, it's much easier to identify what not to do than what to do. So it's, it's a good place to start. Yeah, no, very, very well said. I will say, I also say, for those that track my tweets, the sun always rises and so too does the Phoenix, which is a reference to a certain asset class, which people I think have left for dead just as it's about to come back. But let's have one more quick question and we'll wrap up. Yeah, it's a good question. They, they all started in very different ways, I think. I mean, as I was saying, someone like Francis Chu never, never even made it to college. And yet someone, someone like Howard Marks went to Wharton, Joe Greenblatt went to Wharton, but both of them questioned what they learned. And so Joe Greenblatt went there and he was like, yeah, but all this stuff about markets being efficient, it's just demonstrably bullshit. Because look, I can see uh, a stock that was worth this amount before the nifty 50 meltdown is now worth 70, 80% less. And, and what's actually changed? And so, so they were all, whatever their circumstances, whether they were going through a classical education in finance or whether they were self-taught, they were all what I would describe as non-tribal. They were all people who were thinking for themselves, who were independent-minded, independent-spirited. And so I think, I, I, I think in a way, it's not so much uh, that there's one path up the mountain. It's, it's that you need that temperament of questioning orthodox wisdom, of learning compulsively, being obsessed with the game. They were all somewhat fanatical. I mean, there were, you know, people, people like Bill Miller, he, he, was, he was betting on stocks as a kid. I mean, he, he bought a car 
I, I think he made some money umpiring a baseball game. He came from an incredibly poor background. His dad was a taxi driver. And he, you know, for him, it, it was a treat to go to Burger King on his birthday. Like, it was a really rare treat. And he makes some money, I think, umpiring baseball games, takes the money and makes makes more on a stock. And he's like, this is fantastic. And so I think with all of them, there was a real relish of the game. And so even though I think many of them wanted to become rich and be independent and they had fantasies about what the what the money would do to them, sheer love of the game and obsessiveness with the game. And so I think that's uh, that that's one thing that when you're when you're looking at yourself and asking am i am i made for this it's like would i would i actually sit there happily reading annual reports with the blinds closed kind of for pleasure whether i was paid for it or not and the answer for me sad, sadly is not really like that's not really what i what i'm interested in but i really love interviewing these people and talking to them about what they figured out both in markets and life and so so I mean, one, one, of, one of the most fundamental lessons I think that I've learned from people like Ed Thorpe is, is you want to play games that you can win and, and you want to play games that you're passionate about. And, and they all have that in common. They, they would play this game not, for, not, not to become famous and immensely wealthy, you know, because it's really fun. But I think they, they do also enjoy the side effect, which is not, not just that they become rich. It's not, I write about this a lot at the end of the book about what the money actually does for them. And the single most important thing I think that the money does for them is it gives them independence. It, it gives them that ability to think for themselves and live the way they want to live. And uh, it's, it's a longer topic, what the money does and doesn't give you. But I think ultimately it's, it's mostly about independence. This was a phenomenal conversation. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow William Green here on Twitter. Make sure you check Richer, Wiser, and Happier, available on Amazon. William, first time you and I are doing this, I hope to bring it back on at some point. This was a, a real joy for me to listen to. And everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, William. I do appreciate it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And also check out the podcast, which is that you can subscribe to on, on the We Study Billionaires, but it's called the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast. So you, you get to listen to people like Howard Marks and John Greenblatt and Bill Miller talk, which is always fun because they, they know a lot more than I do. Thanks so much. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.